Well, if you were expecting this morning a traditional Easter sermon, I want to apologize because that is not my plan today. Instead, we're staying in 2 Samuel and we're going to read about a great battle, a grisly death, and a grieving king. That is 2 Samuel chapter 18. And before I read, let me try to set this up for you if you're visiting and not familiar with um, the story in 2 Samuel. So King David has been king in Jerusalem now for many years. David has already committed his great sin with Bathsheba. Um, He has repented of that sin. He has repented of the murder of Bathsheba's husband. But the rest of the, of, the, of the book is telling the story of the consequences of David's sin. And David's son, Absalom, has now conquered Jerusalem, captured Jerusalem. Most of the Israelites are in support of Absalom becoming the king because he is young, handsome, and popular. And now Absalom is leading an army to go out and find and kill his own father. And this is where we're going to begin reading. Chapter 18, verse 1. It says, Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them, commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the commander of Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. I love that name, Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. And so the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. Now, I want to pause here and I want to point something out. God, I believe, is a master storyteller And I love the fact that he tells us this little detail that David wants to fight with his men, but they won't let him fight. He's too valuable, they said. And right there, already in this chapter, we have our first little hint of the gospel, right? So you've got the many soldiers who were willing to sacrifice their lives for the one king. And they say, he's worth 10,000 men. But King Jesus, who we're here to worship, whose value is worth more than all creation, was willing to sacrifice his life for the many. We stood by the gate while Jesus marched to his death. But that's just that's just a taste. It's just a hint. The story is just beginning. Look at verse five. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. 
And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Now, this is incredibly merciful of David. If you remember the story, Absalom has very strategically and intentionally organized a rebellion against his own father. He has slept with his father's wives. And now he's leading an army to kill David. But David orders his generals to be merciful to his son. Verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Now, we don't actually know what that means, that the forest devoured the people, but it sounds a lot like something out of Lord of the Rings. And yet that's what it says. 20,000 men died that day by the sword in the forest. And now we come to my favorite part of the story. Okay, so tune in. If you haven't been listening, listen now. Okay, verse 9. And Absalom, David's son, happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Okay. Now, before I go any further, I have a confession to make to you. If you have been attending Christ Fellowship and you're keeping up with this story, a few weeks ago, I intentionally skipped one verse in chapter 14 and saved it for today. Verse 26, chapter 14 says this. And when Absalom cut the hair of his head... For at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. Okay, so what is that? That's roughly five or six pounds of hair that this man cut off his head every year. Courtney, that's a lot of hair, right? You ever cut anybody's hair that had five or six pounds of hair? No, it's a lot of hair. Okay. And Absalom was known for this. This was his trademark appearance. This was his look. It was also his downfall. Because most commentators assume, and I agree, it's probably his hair that got caught in the oak tree. Okay? So let me put a picture of this up just so you can get a good visual. That's right. It's very likely that David's men found Absalom hanging in the tree by his hair. And of course, it's not a coincidence because nothing is a coincidence. This is clearly the judgment of God. The writer wants us to know that this man is hanging from a tree suspended between heaven and earth. And when the men found Absalom, did they cut him down? Did they take him to David? No. They disobeyed David's orders and they killed him where he hung. 
Joab took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak tree. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. No mercy. None at all. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and they threw him into a great pit in the forest and they raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now, I don't have to work very hard to show you that Absalom is basically an anti-type of Christ Jesus. Absalom was a son of the king. He died hanging on a tree. He was shown no mercy. They buried him in a hole in the ground and covered his body with stones. His story is a crude foreshadow of the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Now, the obvious difference, of course, is that Absalom got what he deserved. He turned on his own father. And of course, Jesus had done nothing wrong. Jesus had completely obeyed his father in every detail. And yet, the scriptures tell us that both of these men died hanging on a tree. Both of these men were laid to rest in tombs covered with stone. Absalom's death is, in many ways, a picture of what we deserve. He is a visible picture of the curse of sin and death that humanity bears because of the sin and death of Adam. The death of Jesus Christ was, according to Scripture, a substitutionary death. And Galatians 3.13 says it clearly. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us in our place. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now this is a really obvious connection, right? But what's interesting is if you go back to 2 Samuel 18... The focus of the story is not on the death of Absalom. Instead, the writer directs our attention and our focus back to David and specifically on the grief of David. And I want you to see this. Okay, so two men are sent back to the camp to tell David the news and they race each other back to camp And they tell David what happened. And this was David's response, beginning in verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. 
chapter 19, verse 1, it was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And so the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day. The king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice. Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son. My son. And then Joab came into the house of the king and said, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life. And the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you. And hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Isn't this interesting? Joab doesn't understand David's grief. Why is David grieving the death of his enemy while the people are celebrating? And Joab says, you should be celebrating with the people. You should not be up here grieving the death of a rebellious son. And so the kingdom is safe, but the king is sad. Why was David so merciful to Absalom in life and then so grieved in his death? Now, as a parent, the easy answer, of course, is, well, he loved his son. And as a parent, you probably know the feeling of, oh, you know, my children could do anything and I would still love them, right? Maybe not this. I don't know. But that's the easy answer. That's the obvious answer. The honest answer is guilt. I want you to think about this with me. David has now lost three sons because of his own sin. He is still suffering the consequences of his choices. And it's not only affecting David, it's affecting the entire nation. Did you read the part where it said 20,000 men died in this battle? Not just Absalom. It's affecting everyone. The shame of the king is the shame of the people. And the writer wants us to see this and feel it. And I think it's because embedded in this tragedy are the seeds of a much greater 
story. This entire episode is crying out for a better king who will bear the curse of our sin and the guilt that we feel and the shameful death that we deserve. And that, of course, is the place of the cross in human history. Christians believe that on an actual Friday afternoon outside the gates of Jerusalem, our Savior hung suspended between heaven and earth, physically and metaphorically, God and man. The curse of sin intersected with the mercy of God at the cross. They put a a crown of thorns on his head, pressed it into his hair, into his scalp. They pierced his side with a spear. Jesus cried out for his father, just as David cried out for his son. David wanted to show Absalom mercy. But Joab knew that that man had to die. God wanted to show us mercy. But someone had to die. And not just anyone. It had to be the Son of God. You see, there's a tension with the cross. The cross to the Christian, was both a tragedy and a victory. It was the only way for David's guilt and our guilt to actually be dealt with. The judgment of God had to fall somewhere. Now, truth be told, most preachers are going to avoid talking about sin, death, and judgment today. And that's where Christianity is in modern church culture because it doesn't sell. People don't go to church on Easter to hear bad news. And so most preachers this morning will skip to the resurrection and they will talk about God's unconditional love and His resurrection power and our hope for the future But none of that really matters if you don't believe in judgment. Not really. And if we're going to be honest, that is the most difficult obstacle for most people considering Christianity. It's not the victory of the cross, it's the tragedy of it that's hard to swallow. Is God really going to send people to hell? Is that really what human beings deserve? Are we really all that bad? Rebecca McLaughlin um, great book. It's called Confronting Christianity. There are two copies of it over on the table if you want to buy it after the service. Um, She has an interesting way of dealing with that question in her book. And this is what she says. 
She says, it has been said that no friendship in the world would last a day if we could see each other's thoughts. Run that test on yourself between now and tomorrow. Think of everyone you spend time with and ask the question, would I let them see a transcript of my thoughts? My marriage would die. My children would be crushed. My friends would leave. Now, of course, she goes on to say, it's not, not all our thoughts are bad, right? Many are good. But all of us are hiding a lot of things from other people that only God sees. And there's this thin line that's running between good and evil in the human heart. And sometimes those thoughts become actions and sometimes those actions are wicked. And universally, all of us feel anger when we hear about violence and abuses committed by other people. Right? Unless you're a sociopath, right? You, it, it makes you upset to hear about shootings and and abuses and other tragedies that are committed by other people, right? But all of those actions are born in the human heart. And all of us, according to God, are guilty. And that's the most difficult thing about Christianity. That's the hard part. Before you can accept God's love for sinners, you have to believe you are one. Rachel Denhollander was the first woman to file abuse charges against gymnastics coach Larry Nasser. She was given an opportunity to speak during his trial. And she used that opportunity to share the gospel with him. The man who took her innocence. And this is what she said. She said, the Bible carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. Now, do you see what this is? This is a victim telling her abuser what to do with his sin and guilt. But in doing so, do you realize that she's putting herself in the same position as her abuser? And that is God's answer to our strongest objection. We struggle to believe that most people actually deserve hell. Some people, maybe. Not everyone. But the real mystery is this. Why does God offer mercy where none should be found?
Why would God give up His only Son for rebels? For sinners. For guilty people. For really any of us. Because His value is far greater than our souls. And so in the spirit of Joab, we should be asking, why would God show us that kind of mercy? And listen, no one in this room, not me, not anybody in this room, has the moral high ground. It doesn't matter if you've been in church your whole life, or if this is your first time to have ever stepped foot inside a church building. It doesn't matter if you're the worst criminal in this room, or if you've done an excellent job hiding the evil thoughts in your heart. Regardless of any of that, you, me, we are being offered the free gift of God's grace purchased by the blood of His only Son. But it's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It actually has the power to begin to change things even now. It has the power to transform even the most difficult relationships in your life. And we see this specifically in the story of David and Absalom. If he can forgive his son, if he can show him mercy, then surely no relationship is beyond hope. Because in the kingdom of God, even the victims are able to forgive their victimizers. And Joab could not understand it. Joab could not understand why David wanted to show mercy to Absalom. It was because David had already received mercy from God. The grace of God for David was alive in the heart of David. And the evidence of that grace and that forgiveness was spilling over into David's relationships, even with his worst enemies. Consider the words of Jesus. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And here's the thing. If anybody has the right to say that, it's Jesus. And what the cross shows us is that showing mercy to someone else will always cost us far more than the person receiving it. God's mercy cost us nothing and it cost Him everything. But this, this is the heart of God for His people. This is the evidence of a life being transformed by grace. This is what our world desperately needs. This is why Jesus hung on a cross. And this is how God will turn tragedy into victory. We do not have to be stuck between the judgment of God and the mercy of God. Because on a hill called Calvary stands an endless mercy tree. And Jesus says to us, repent and believe. Come with empty hands. You have nothing to give him. Just repent.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is not an easy message. The gospel is not easy to believe. In fact, it's impossible for us to believe without your spirit. We ask for it now. We ask for your help to believe that the Lord Jesus has conquered death by death. To believe that that work is finished and that we have hope. Help us to believe that we are actually in danger of the judgment of God's wrath without that security. Because your grace is meaningless without that. And I pray that you would help us this morning to put our trust either once again or for the first time in the Lord Jesus. And if there's any here that are unsure or confused, Lord, I pray that you would meet them where they're at and speak the truth of the gospel to their hearts specifically, personally, that they would find you to be the answer this morning to all the shame, all the guilt. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Uh...